Hey, and welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. We are a church that is for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We are passionate about helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So if you're just joining us for the first time, we would love for you to check out our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. There you can find ways to connect with us and see what's happening at Crosspoint. Now, let's listen to this week's Sunday message. Welcome. Walking up to that music makes me feel really powerful. There's something about like that ominous. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen now. But uh, I just want to say welcome to all of you who are joining us in person and online. We're so glad that you're here with us today. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Delaney and I'm the children's pastor here at Crosspoint. And the reason that I get to be in the worship center here with you this morning is because we have such an incredible team of volunteers who are downstairs right now discipling your kids. They are pretty incredible, and I am very thankful for each of them. So as a quick reminder, you can find digital notes for today's message at thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes. And I want to start off our time together by sharing an opinion that I probably should not share, particularly because I am a pastor. But my friends and coworkers would all tell you that I'm nothing if not honest. So here it is. I think that my life would be easier if I was not a Christian. I heard an amen there. Wow. <laughs> I have said it now, and I cannot take it back. I really do think that my life would be easier if I wasn't a Christian, and I'm going to use some photos of Pastor Amanda to help me illustrate why. (laughs) If we can put the first one up. Has anyone here ever been faced with this conundrum? Yeah, okay, thank you. See, I want to clarify that Netflix is not inherently bad, like depending on what, on what you choose to watch. Um, but sometimes I just feel a little bit guilty for wasting my time watching a cheesy rom-com when I could probably have been zo- doing something a little bit holier or more spiritual. Uh, and I think my life would be easier if I did not have to deal with that. Uh, let's put the next one up. Sometimes, you know, I just think that it would be so much more satisfying if I could just let terrible drivers know how I really feel about them. But that's probably not what Jesus would do. And so now I have to be the bigger person and show them love even when I'd really rather not. Okay, and we have one final one. So, of course... My life would be so much easier if I wasn't trying to find a Christian man to marry. You know, that one caveat, it really limits my dating pool. And it has led to some awkward interactions with men who don't quite love Jesus as much as they say they do. That is an actual thing that someone said to me on a date after I told him that I was a pastor. Um, It didn't end well. Now, I think that those hardships are enough to clearly illustrate my point that life would be easier if I wasn't a Christian. But I think we all know that it doesn't end there. 
You know, I had a hard time with this when I was in high school because no one wanted to invite the good Christian kid to parties. And to be fair, I didn't really want to attend their parties, but I wanted to be invited. You know, I wanted to be a part of the group, but I was automatically disqualified because I didn't go to church on Sunday mornings. And now, I don't just go to church on a Sunday morning. I work at a church on Sunday morning, and that makes people get a whole new level of weird. Okay, so this last summer, I met some people while I was traveling in Europe, and when I mentioned that I worked as a pastor, you could immediately see them putting up walls. They were no longer interested in building a relationship with me because of the hurt that they had experienced from the church. They were also confused because they thought I was a nun, but that's like besides the point. <laughs> I was like drinking a beer with them and they were like, what? Anyways, um, I'm sure that I'm not the only person in this room who has experienced people putting up walls when they find out that you're a Christian. The internet does an excellent job of illustrating just how much people don't like Christians. You know, I recently watched a video where Christians were responding to different controversial issues. And while I didn't agree with all the views that the individuals in the video held, the comment section was full of people letting us know exactly how they felt about Christianity. Some of the top comments included, this video should have been called Lessons on Extreme Self-Righteousness. And people ask me why I'm scared of Christianity. This is exactly why I hate organized religion. And I respect everyone for their beliefs, but these people are just straight up delusional. Reading those comments, it made me think, maybe life would be easier if I wasn't a Christian and I didn't hold to views that can be offensive to the rest of the world. But for many of us, it's not just strangers on the internet who are calling us crazy. Maybe being a Christian and going to church makes you the black sheep of your family. Your family gatherings might be filled with tension because of the beliefs that you hold. Or your coworkers might avoid you for fear of you talking about your faith. Your professors might dock you marks on your assignments because you choose to hold firmly to the beliefs that go against their view of the world. For those of us who identify as Christians, I think we often feel like foreigners in a broken world. How appropriate that this is the title of the sermon series we began last week. We're going to spend the next couple of months going through 1 Peter, and Pastor Amanda has already introduced us to that feeling we often have of being alone, feeling like an outsider, feeling unwelcome. We are sojourners far from home. We're exiles. We're foreigners in a land that is not our own. And we're not the first Christians who have felt this way. For centuries, Christian lives around the world would have probably been easier if they had chosen not to follow Jesus. I think that this is particularly true for believers in the early church. 
You'll remember from last week that the New Testament letter we're studying was written by the Apostle Peter and sent to believers throughout Asia Minor. This region is what we know today as Turkey. And there's some debate among scholars as to the exact date that the letter was written, but we can guess that it was written in the years leading up to Emperor Nero and the persecution that he would inflict upon Christians all throughout the Roman Empire. So Christians probably weren't being actively persecuted yet, but they would have faced cultural discrimination, different social pressures, as well as the potential loss of rights and privileges simply for identifying with Christ. Believers in Peter's day went against the ways of the world. They stood out because of the way they dressed, how they spoke, and the ways that they acted. For Christians both then and now, it hasn't been easy to identify with Christ. It's not always comfortable, and it doesn't make us popular or well-liked. So, if my life would be easier if I wasn't a Christian, why am I standing here today? Why are you in this room singing worship songs and taking communion and opening up your Bibles? Why have Christians for thousands of years, despite the logic telling us not to, chosen to follow Christ? And I believe the answer for that lies in the first letter of Peter. So I am going to read today's passage, starting at 1 Peter 1 verse 2. And as I read, I want you to imagine how this would have sounded to the first listeners, to the new believers living in a world that was largely against them. They were Christian believers who felt unwelcome and discriminated against. They were exiles, foreigners in a broken world. And this is what Peter said to them. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You know, if Peter was standing up here with me today, and I said to him, you know, Pete, I think my life would be easier if I wasn't a Christian. 
You know, I think he might say, well, Delaney, you're probably right. Because remember, just a few years after he had written this letter, Peter was martyred because of his faith in Christ. But I don't think that would stop Peter from saying this. We gladly choose to follow Christ because of the hope we have in him. That was the big idea that Peter wanted to communicate to the believers throughout Asia Minor. And it's the big idea that I want us to understand this morning. We gladly choose to follow Christ because of the hope we have in him. Now that word hope is important for us today. In most translations, hope is included somewhere in the section heading right before verse 3. Yours might say something like the hope of eternal life or praise to God for a living hope. And I want to make it clear that these section headings are not a part of the original text. Okay, Peter didn't have sections and subsections to clearly break up his letters, even though it would be nice of him to do that. The Bible translators added those sections afterwards as a useful tool to help modern readers better understand the text. So while we don't want to add any more weight to the section headings than we should, most Bible translators would agree that this particular collection of verses has something to do with the word hope. So we should probably talk about hope. According to the very handy dictionary on Google, hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Hope is something that I'm sure all of us have felt before. Who here is an Oilers fan? You, like, are really timidly putting up your hands. You don't want to admit that. Oilers fans are really good at hoping. Okay, you hope. (laughs) You hope that they win their next game. You hope that they make it to the playoffs. You hope that they are not quite as terrible as they were once known to be. Throughout the pandemic, all of us were hoping that it would come to an end. We were hoping that our loved ones would stay safe. We were hoping that restrictions would be lifted and we could gather together without masks or social distancing. Maybe you're hoping for a raise at work. Or you're hoping that that cute girl will go on a date with you. Or you're hoping that just once, your kids will let you sleep in on a Saturday night. We're familiar with that feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. And while biblical hope is similar, it's also decidedly different. If we were to look through the Old Testament in its original language, there are two main Hebrew words that most often get translated as hope. Yakal and kava. And the literal definition for each of these words is to wait or to wait for. So in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters receded, Noah had to yakal for weeks. These words carry with them the feeling of waiting and expectation. But most often, it is not waiting for something but for some one. We see this repeatedly in the Psalms. So Psalm 147, verse 11, says, No, the Lord's delight is in those who fear him, those who put their hope in his unfailing love. 
And then Psalm 39 verse 7 says, And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. The writers of the Psalms, they aren't proclaiming, I sure hope that Saul will stop trying to kill me, or I hope that I'm not in Babylonian exile for too long. Instead, the psalmists write, I hope in God. And in the same way, the prophets are hoping not in something, but in someone. Micah 7.7 says that as for me, I look to the Lord for help. I wait, or I hope, confidently for God to save me. And my God will certainly hear me. In Isaiah My mercy and justice are coming soon. My salvation is on the way. My strong arm will bring justice to the nations. All distant lands will look to me and wait in hope for my powerful arm. These prophets and the Jews who heard their message were waiting for someone who would come as the fulfillment of the prophecy, the fulfillment of God's promises. Their hope was in a person, not a circumstance. And because you and I are living in a post-New Testament world, we have the privilege of knowing exactly who that person is. Although they didn't know it yet, the prophets of the Old Testament were already placing their hope in Christ. And this is what hope becomes in the New Testament. See, the New Testament is written in Greek, so they had to choose a new word for hope, elpis. This word conveys the feelings of anticipation, of expectation, and of having confidence. This is the word that Peter writes in his letter as he reminds us that our hope is in Christ. Verse 3 reads that it is by God's great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we live with great expectation. Most translations will say that we have been born again to a living hope. That word, elpis. And this is where Peter reminds us that we hope in what Jesus has done. That third verse, it contains the message of the gospel. The message that the prophets had anticipated and hoped for. This is a message that many of us are already familiar with today, but I don't want our familiarity to cause us to diminish or forget this good news. And if you are unfamiliar, then let me introduce you to the hope we have in Jesus. Because in the beginning, God created a perfect world. It was a world defined by peace and harmony, a world where the presence of God dwelled fully, a world where we could live in perfect communion with our creator. The world was good, but it wouldn't stay that way. Instead, our world became broken through human disobedience. Humans decided that we would rather do what we want instead of what God wants. And so sin entered the world, And brought with it disease, violence, corruption, and death. The brokenness of this world is chronicled throughout all of scripture. As we read stories of adultery, 
and war, idolatry, famine, rape, murder. And we know that those same stories are pervasive in our world today. So the world was broken, and we ourselves became separated from God, unable to overcome the barrier that sin had erected between us, unable to restore our relationship with the God of the universe. Left to our own power and strength, we were weak and powerless. But God wasn't willing to leave us there. And so... Because of his great love for us, because he wanted to see his broken world redeemed and restored, because he longed for the restoration of our own relationship with him, Christ came to earth. The creator entered his creation, and as Jesus walked through this broken world, he lived the perfect life that none of us can. And then he died on the cross that never should have been his. He died on the cross that was built for each of us. And then he did what none of us ever could. Three days after he died, Jesus rose again. Jesus defeated death and the grave. And because of this, we have hope. And our hope rests not only in what Jesus has done on the cross and in the grave, we also hope in what Jesus will do. Verses 4 and 5 of Peter's letter say that we have been born again and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Now, the word inheritance would have carried a lot of meaning for the Jewish believers listening to Peter's letter. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham an inheritance. He promised to make Abraham into a great nation, to bless him and make him famous, to make him a blessing to others. God promised Abraham that his descendants would receive the land of Canaan, and this promised land was the inheritance that would prove to the people of Israel that their God was with them and their God was for them. The promised land was central to the story of God and his people in the Old Testament. The problem with that inheritance, though, was that it became tarnished and defiled. It was ruined by drought and famine. It became subject to the devastation of Israel's enemies and ultimately, It was overcome by foreign domination. And that's what makes the priceless inheritance in 1 Peter so significant. It isn't a land that can be affected by the brokenness of this world. The new inheritance for the people of God is eternal life with Christ. And this inheritance cannot perish or fade because it is being kept by God who is the perfect And unlike Abraham, who never fully grasped the inheritance that had been promised to him, God is keeping us by his power until we can fully grasp our promised inheritance. 
No matter what happens to us in this world, it does not change our future inheritance. And that is our alkis, our hope. Peter tells us that we hope in what Jesus has done and we hope in what Jesus will do. We look behind us and we look ahead of us to this person, to Jesus. Biblical hope is a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that is as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. And this is why Peter says that we gladly choose to follow Christ because of the hope we have in him. The problem, though, and the challenge that you and I face today is that we haven't made it to our future inheritance yet. Right now, we're in the awkward middle part of the world where I'm not always glad to follow Christ because being a Christian is hard and it makes me feel guilty when I watch too much Netflix. And although Peter likely was not thinking about Netflix as he penned his letter, he did have a message for those of us who are in the middle of the hard right now. In verses 6 and 7, he says, So be truly glad. And at this point, I think to myself, don't tell me what to do, Peter. But he says, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, It will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Now I want to take a quick moment to clarify what Peter means when he talks about going through trials. Because each of us face countless trials in our day-to-day. You know, when my car broke down in the middle of day camp last summer, that was a trial. Thank you, Lloyd, for saving me there. When you have been applying for jobs for months and no one has called you back, that's a trial. When you're at the part of the semester where you're drowning in coursework and are questioning all of the decisions that have led you to this point, that's a trial. Each of these are examples of bad events in life that happen to good, God-fearing people. But none of those trials happen simply because we are Christians who have chosen to follow Jesus. Peter wrote his letter to groups of believers who were facing discrimination and social pressures because they chose to stand for the gospel of salvation and proclaim that gospel in word and deed. Our hope in Jesus is still relevant, and it still matters when we're at the mechanic. But for Peter, he was writing specifically to those people who felt like foreigners in a broken world. And so when you yourself feel like a foreigner, here are two encouragements for you. First, your trials are temporary. And that is not to deny that our trials are hard or try to diminish them in any way. Realistically, when Peter says we must endure many trials for a little while, that little while is probably referring to your entire life. Sorry. Because for as long as we are waiting for Jesus to come again, we will feel like outsiders in a world that doesn't want us here. 
So we can acknowledge that reality, and we can also look beyond right now to what lies ahead. Remember, we have a future inheritance. In Jesus, we have a hope that the world can never give us. So our trials are temporary, and our trials also have a purpose. In verse 7, Peter likens our faith to gold being purified by fire. When gold is first extracted from wherever it lives, it's not pure gold. There's a bunch of other naturally naturally occurring substances mixed in. And that other stuff doesn't make for a very pretty pair of earrings. So one of the ancient methods for extracting those impurities was to melt the gold over a fire. And then because of science, the other substances would rise to the top so you could carefully pick them out. What gets left behind is the good stuff, the pure gold. And in the same way, trials will test us until what's left is real, genuine faith. If you can endure ridicule and slander and discrimination and persecution and still choose to identify with Christ, then I think you can be pretty confident that your faith is real. Your faith is genuine. And that faith will carry you until the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And that brings us to our final two verses from Peter's letter for today. Verses 8 and 9. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. It's true that our lives might be easier if we weren't We wouldn't be concerned about what people are saying about us online. It might be easier to get along with different members of your family. I might have been invited to more parties in high school. Just like Peter, though, I don't want to choose what's easier. I don't need Jesus to be physically present here beside me to believe in him, to trust in him to place my hope in him. I will gladly choose to follow Christ because of the hope I have in him. And according to Peter, we should respond to the good news of the gospel by rejoicing with a glorious, inexpressible joy. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to invite the band to come back up, and we are going to sing living hope again. The lyrics of this song were taken straight from scripture and they proclaim the truth of the person who is our hope. And I want to challenge you as we sing to allow your bodies to be a physical expression of the joy you experience because of your hope in Christ. You know, that could mean bowing before the King of Kings or raising your hands to the Lord of Lords, or if you're able, jumping and dancing as a way to say, thank you, Jesus, for the hope I have in you. There will come a day 
when we receive our inheritance in full. We will enter fully into the presence of God, and we will get to spend the rest of eternity worshiping him. So I say, let's start now. Let's worship God with all our hearts, all our minds, and all our strength as we sing about Christ, our living hope. Will you stand as we sing? Silence the roaring. 
God, we praise you today as our King of kings and our Lord of lords, and we look forward to that day when we get to meet you face to face. God, I thank you for this promised inheritance that you have given to us that can never spoil or fade. Jesus, thank you for what you did by coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, and rising again from the grave. Jesus, we praise you as our living hope because you are alive. And so we praise you today. And God, I pray that we would carry that truth with us into the rest of the week as we go home today and go uh, about whatever our weeks hold, whether we're going to work or to school or wherever it is. Uh, would our hope be in you, in you alone. Amen. Hey, and welcome back. Thanks for listening to this Sunday's message. We hope that we've helped you in your spiritual journey and that you're drawing closer to God. At Crosspoint, we gather on Sundays at 10 a.m. in Northeast Edmonton and throughout the week in something we love to call home groups. Home groups are encouraging and transformational communities for people just like you. We believe that the journey of faith is done together. So we hope that you'll connect with us at thecrosspointchurch.ca. Now, let me remind you of who you are. You are the people of God, called by God into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are.